Welcome to the Real Life Diabetes Podcast. My name is Amber Kluwer, and I enjoy sharing my story and those of other people living their best life with this disease. Before we dive into this episode, I have a few quick announcements. Number one, the Diabetes Daily Grind is a nonprofit charitable organization. Funds raised help keep the podcast, website, and advocacy efforts afloat. It's easy. Just click the donate link on my website or purchase a copy of Doing Diabetes Differently. Number two, and this is a big one for me. I've lived with type 1 diabetes for decades and never considered an insulin pump until meeting a few behind the scenes passionate Insulet leaders. And in case you didn't know, Insulet is the maker of the Omnipod tubeless insulin delivery systems. I tiptoed into using a CGM ages ago and my diabetes management has never been better. So when I discovered Omnipod 5, I was sold. I'm in the process of insurance approval and can't wait to share that I finally moved from MDI therapy to being a potter. This is a totally new experience for me, and as you know, and I'm not shy and will share my thoughts with the world. Why did I choose Omnipod over the other options, you ask? It was simple. It's tubeless and waterproof. It integrates the Dexcom G6 to automatically adjust insulin based on the CGM value to help keep you in range. And the automatic insulin adjustments happen every five minutes, even when you're sleeping. Thank you for that. I can't wait to try Omnipod 5. And who knows, I might change my tagline from cheers to the highs and lows to there's nothing like being in range. Stay tuned. If you'd like to try Omnipod 5 yourself, you may be eligible for a trial. For eligibility, free trial terms and conditions, and full safety information, visit omnipod.com backslash DDG. All right, enough rambling. Let's get started. Today's guest, Jazz Sethi, is the founder and director of the Diabetes Foundation, a global movement to make those with type 1 diabetes feel heard, understood, supported, and celebrated. She is also a certified diabetes educator, a professional dancer, choreographer, theater artist, and a published author. Jazz, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. And I have to say, like, just reading that out loud, it's like, how do you have time to deal with your diabetes? Because <laughs> that's a lot. I know. I, I try to try to do the best of both worlds and try to combine them as much as I can together. <laughs> so a lot of the events that you come to at Diabestes, there's a lot of dancing happening. So oh, I marry cool. both my worlds together. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start with where are you calling in from? So I am from Ahmedabad in India. So if everyone, anyone's aware of where Mumbai is, we're about 600 kilometers north of that. So okay. it's a state called Gujarat, but I'm very much here from India. Well, that is, and I have to say to the listeners, because we've been trying to record this for ages, both of our schedules, then the time change. I mean, it's just been one funny thing after another. So listeners just know that it has taken a lot to get us both at the same time. I'm going to say the same table, which is not really the case. Uh, <laughs> well, let's start with your diagnosis story. So I was diagnosed when I was 13 years old. And it was, you know, anyone with type 1 will relate to the story of how I was losing around 7 kgs in a week. I was drinking so much water. I was always in the bathroom. Uh, but the funny thing was, you know, I was 13 years old and we were practicing for a soccer tournament you know uh -huh. we had this girls team and we were very excited to be the next Cristiano Ronaldo uh, <laughs> so there was a lot of really really like long practice hours every single day so there were five hour practices so my parents thought that I was losing all the weight and drinking all the water because I was playing so much soccer yeah 
Cut to about a week later, my mom, of course, being the first one to realize that, no, this child has lost a lot of weight. So we did the normal thing, got some blood work done. In India, we had this concept of a family physician. So -hmm. we called up our family physician and he was like, just get the normal blood work, urine work done. And the results went to him directly. And he called up my dad and said, rush her to the emergency room right now. Uh, Her blood sugar is something like 900. So we went to the emergency room. We went to the emergency room. Funny thing, I was still conscious. So I walked in and the emergency doctor, the on-call doctor there, refused to believe that my sugar could be that high. So he said to my parents that there has to be some mix up in the lab. It's not possible that her sugar is this high. So he looked at me, he checked me out. He said, yeah, she's very dehydrated, but I don't think her sugar is that high. So they did a blood test at the hospital. Came back with a sugar of 1,050. Oh, my and God. He looks at me saying, yeah, she's type 1 diabetic. <laughs> and that is how I was diagnosed. Wow. Oh, my gosh. I didn't even know a blood sugar could get that high. It was insane. And so I was immediately put into the ICU intensive care. I was there for about five days. And then my consulting endocrinologist walked in. He explained to me about type 1 diabetes. And it was declared that I was type 1. Okay, so five days in the hospital, were you in actually, were you in DKA yet or? I was very much in DKA. My acetone was like 80, where like it's supposed to be below nine. So I had ketones, the oh. whole world, everything. It was very much uh, touch and go, actually. Do you have a family history of type 1 diabetes? Not at all. So my grandmother used to be type 2 diabetic, but uh-huh. she was the only one that was diabetic in the entire family. Wow. Okay, so many questions on that. Okay, right off the bat. And I'm asking this because you were diagnosed in another country and I'm curious to what medications at at that point in time, you were 13. How many years ago was that? 15 years ago. 15. Okay. So you're young. (laughs) (laughs) What, what medications did they immediately put you on and how did they explain to you what your new life was going to be like? So I think they immediately put me on a lot of, of course, sodium chloride. And because I was extremely dehydrated, Mm -hmm. but they also put me on to, I believe at I believe it was fast acting as part at the time uh, uh-huh. because the first injection that I was prescribed after I got out of the hospital was Lantus and Novorapid. So I was on analogs immediately. <laughs> I was luckily a part of a medical setup which did not prescribe mixed insulin or human insulin, which is mm-hmm. the majority of the Indian population gets prescribed NPH or regular. Mm-hmm. But even though, and, I, and, I, and I'm very aware of the place of privilege I speak from, I was diagnosed in a private fancy hospital, not like a government hospital in India, yeah. because we have a government health sector, a public health sector and a private health sector. The government healthcare sector is extremely overburdened. But having said that, and have, being aware of where I come from, even with my doctor who is fabulous, he actually just spent about seven minutes with me talking to me about what my life would be. And it was more of like a to-do list. Okay, you're not allowed to eat bananas or or like mangoes or this, 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 this. <laughs> and you're supposed to eat this. And this is yeah. how much insulin you have to take. It was, it was just that. It was very unilateral and prescriptive, which is unfortunately the case in India. And yeah. that's what we're trying to actually even change. So you get home. Were your parents freaked out at all about this? Or did they, I mean... And did they let you manage your own diabetes or did your mom step in or your dad and help? So it was very, it was very interesting because of course, I think they had their moment of shock as well, but they never showed it in front of me, but they were very 
open with me being independent at that time. So I never have gotten an injection from my parents. I, I yeah. immediately after that started taking my own injections. But they were supportive uh, in ways that I couldn't have been as a 13-year-old. So, for example, those 3 a.m. blood sugars that I had to check earlier on, yeah. my dad would wake up every single night, you know, and wake mm. me up to check my sugar. Uh, my mom would sort of get my entire hypokit ready for me. But it was a very sort of joint collaborative effort. But the management bit, I tried to do as much as I could by myself. And did you go back to playing soccer? Funny story, in fact, and this was a very stigma-busting story. So the day I was discharged from the hospital, two days after that was the first soccer match, right? And my coach said, no, I cannot play because I was diabetic, mm -hmm. which was very, very hard-hitting for me because, yeah. you know, it was in that moment, two days after I was diagnosed, that my world was already crumbling. Yeah. And then this comes and says, you can't play soccer. And I was like, so the thing I really love doing, I can't do it anymore because of my condition. Luckily, so I, I fought a lot and uh, I, I went to the match. I went to the game anyways, and I was a substitute. I was on the line. Mm -hmm. And then my captain, who was my very good friend, she midway sort of ordered a substitution. And when my coach was not looking, got me onto the field. <laughs> and I, I ended up scoring the winning goal. Oh. So 13-year-old Jazz like won at life at that mm -hmm. moment. where And that was that defining moment when I really believed that I could do anything, even with this condition. Oh, wow. That is a great story. Good God. And good on you and your friend for sneaking you into the game because, <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's so many things on that. Well, let's talk about, and one of the reasons, I mean, I've been stalking you for quite some time because as a fellow advocate, I love seeing what other people are doing, especially in other countries for advocacy efforts. And don't quote me on this listeners, but India has a very high rate of type 1 di diabetes period, what made you think I want to start a foundation and, and give back and help people? Absolutely. So just absolutely, people can quote you on that because it's completely true. So we have 77 million people with diabetes in India. Oh. Uh, and that's the highest in the world right now at this moment. And 10% of those are type 1 diabetics. Yeah. Also, that's a very conservative number because what we're trying to count here are registered cases. But yeah. we have a 60% of our country still lives in the rural population mm -hmm. where registration is just not done. So the real numbers are actually way higher, uh, which nobody's talking about. But, you know, when I was diagnosed, and like I just mentioned to you, and such an amazing question that you asked of how was I told about this life and yeah. the, the fact of the matter is I wasn't. I think my my healthcare team never prepared me for what type 1 diabetes was yeah especially because we don't have a team we just have an endocrinologist or a diabetologist yeah. i know in the west and in the nhs and in some places in the us also and in australia you have diabetes teams where you have a dietitian mm -hmm. a psychologist a podiatrist an endo educator we don't have that because we just don't have the capacity. well that's rare let me say that too because okay. it, i mean here in the states to find an endocrinologist is so hard and to get a certified diabetes educator to continue the education, again, very hard because insurance doesn't always cover it or your doctor doesn't even prescribe it. Keep going. I'm sorry, but it's there. So I think we have yeah. similarities. There are more similarities yeah. than I think. Yeah. But, you know, I was a very curious child. And because I was not told enough about my condition, I wanted to go onto YouTube and Google as a young child yeah. to try to learn about it. Unfortunately, back in the day, so in 2009, when I used to go on YouTube in the Indian setting and, and try to look for type 1 diabetes videos, all I could find, and again, no offense to anyone, but were like boring 
lectures from <laughs> and as a 13 year old i was like that is not engaging at all <laughs> right cut to 10 years later actually in 2018 i actually started diabetes as just wanting to be a youtube channel i said let's just create a youtube channel mm -hmm. which makes learning about type 1 diabetes fun which makes it not depressing which makes it okay for people to come out because in India, we didn't have this idea of support groups, which was available in the States or in, in the UK and stuff like that. So I just started with wanting to be a fun YouTube channel. Cut to me saying, okay, if I'm starting a YouTube channel, I should meet other type ones. Till then, I had never met a single other type one in my yeah. life. So I called up my doctor and I was like, listen, I want to have a meetup. So can you give me some of your, your you know, the patients that come to you? <laughs> And he gave me like a list of people. He said, you can reach out to these guys. And the first thing I would call them up, I, I made like private calls. And I said, listen, the first thing I would say is, hi, I'm Jazz. I'm type 1 diabetic myself because a lot of people in India don't like to tell. That's what it is. That was a question I was going to have for you is if it's culturally, I'm not going to say frowned upon, but something you don't speak about. It's just because there's so much stigma. There yeah, is so yeah. much stigma that people are shy and it's much better now, but back then it really wasn't. So I made about 40 calls and I was like, you know what, even if <laughs> Three people show up I'm gonna have a great time you know and I was I was so sure like I'm just three people are gonna show up and in that first meetup I called like 35 people and like 30 people showed up oh. so and that's when I knew that there was a gap there was yeah. a gap in the healthcare structure of our country where peer support was not existent where lived experience was not given the importance it should be given yeah. and that ignited diabetes and then mm -hmm. we registered as a charity that year it's been it's we're going to enter our sixth year and over the years the more i saw the problems the more projects you know came into fruition and today we are six years old we have a team of 52 members all of them are wow. living with type 1 diabetes and most, so I think about 48 of them are type one and the rest are caregivers. We have presence in over 32 chapters all over India. And we're doing a lot of work on advocacy, awareness, education, and peer support in the country. My gosh, again, I don't know how you have time to sleep. It's like, <laughs> I mean, I, there's no, there are no words. And everything that you're speaking about is so much about why I started the Diabetes Daily Grind was because I didn't know anybody. And I've had type one diabetes for 40 years and connecting with other people now on a global level has brought so much joy to my life and so much peace. And I know that if I'm ever in India or if I'm ever in South Africa, I have friends. Just, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You have, you have diabetes all over the world. Well, and so you just launched or in the process of launch, no, you just launched a new concept. I want you to speak about decoded. Yes, one of our sort of reach out access awareness projects where it, it, it came out of a very personal story as well, where I really am interested in diabetes research, but I don't come from a medical background, like mm -hmm. most of my team doesn't. And uh, we're constantly interested in knowing about what's being researched about our condition. Yeah, but uh, I'm a very visual learner. Okay, so if you know anything about me, I'm all about the design, the aesthetics. So when I even look at an abstract or if I look at a research paper, it's like 11 point font. It's not colorful. It's really long. Yeah. Again, no offense to anyone, but it's very intimidating for someone who doesn't have a medical background. Yeah. But when you speak from lived experience, you have the right to know about what they're researching about your condition. Yeah. So Decoded was born out of a deep yearning of the type 1 community to be able to understand research. So uh, the entire idea is that 
all these research articles are simplified. They're decoded mm -hmm. by a team of people who can understand research and who also have lived experience. So it, so of course, it decodes the article for you. It makes it into a bite-sized, digestible nuggets. Yeah. It into very aesthetic infographics, which people from a non-medical background like myself can understand. And then most importantly, at the end, it answers questions about how you can use that research in your life. And then the biggest part of it is that we said we don't want to make this as a gap between the researchers and the people living with diabetes. So each decoded article is then verified by an expert researcher. So uh -huh. we're not, you know, playing with the scientific integrity of yeah. the work. At the same time, we are making it relevant for people who are living with the condition. Can you give me an example of one of the subjects or the research publications or whatever that you're speaking about? Because I know yes. I get press releases daily and I read them always because I want to know what's going on. And again, like you were saying, they're not in layman's terms and they're hard to understand. Yeah, give me an idea of a subject or two that can be found on the decoded. So we actually just launched right on the 3rd of November. One of the first articles that we launched with was the concept study done in the UK by Professor Eleanor Scott and Professor Helen Murphy. And the entire concept study talks about how CGM in pregnancy really sort of makes the complications for the baby and for the mother much less. Mm -hmm. Now, putting it into real world context, if somebody from India, let's say, reads the decoded website, sees the research and says that it is scientifically proven that if I want to get pregnant, I should be given a CGM because that will sort of make my chances and my baby's chances a lot better, you know? Yeah. Uh, so they can use that research. Firstly, they would never be able to even understand that if it was not made accessible to them. Sure. So the idea here is tomorrow, if I want to get pregnant, I can go to my HCP and say, this is the data, help me get a CGM. Oh, that's great. And okay, two questions on that. When you were diagnosed, did they give you the long list of everything you shouldn't do or the death sentence or the complications? And one of those, and I asked that as a female that I was told not to have children, which now oh, we know really? is, yeah. And at the age of eight, I think that's a little hard, a hard hit. It's like, I, I don't want kids anyway, <laughs> but yeah. So <laughs> were you given the same, like a list? Yeah. I mean, the list was, it was very rigid. It was about what you can't do. You can't you can't play sports, so you can't yeah. uh, dance too much. And I was, a, I became a professional dancer after that. <laughs> I think it was also a lot of, if you don't take care, you will go blind. If you don't yeah. take care, you will lose a foot. And that's so much of the language matters work that we do nowadays all over the world just talks about how that is not how you talk about complications, right? Yeah. And the work that we're doing in diabetes, along with so many amazing colleagues on the language matters bit is to not use scare tactics and not use fear mongering and talk because so much of that language propagates stigma as well. And yeah. I come from a country where... I keep, in every conference I go to, honestly, like Amber, I talk about how it's not just the lack of insulin that's killing us in India. It's the stigma that's killing us, quite yeah. literally, because the stigma in India or any lower income country is so prevalent where it compromises care. Yeah. You know, you're, you're told that, oh, if, if you're type one, you're flawed, you're contagious. Parents are disowning their children. Parents are asking, are mm -hmm. taking their own child's life and it's because of what people will say. There's so much societal conditioning. There's so much a pervasive stigma. And the language we talk about diabetes plays such a direct correlation to the stigma that we talk about also. Oh, that's 100% correct. And I'm so sad to hear that people would take their child's life because of that. I know that people have 
Oh, just terrible. What some parents have done. Yeah. Cause it's not our fault. Oh, yeah. so now here's a question for you because I have no family history and I have my own conspiracy theories. Do you have any thoughts as to why you were the, the chosen one? Oh, wow. That's such an interesting question. And I think I had a long sort of journey with myself where I kept asking, why me? Yeah, I haven't really gone into the science or even trying to understand why me? Because I feel like those are such futile questions. And, and so yeah. much of denial comes from that why me question. But my grandmother, who was type 2, she passed away earlier this year, in fact. Oh. But my grandmother used to tell me that, and it's a very naive understanding, but it's what I take to get my strength from. She says that God only gives challenges to those who he knows can face them. So it was with that understanding that I said, okay, why me? Because of that, because I can actually face it. But it's actually very curious that the conspiracy theory that you're talking about, I got herpes actually before I was diagnosed, two years before, and not the STD kind of herpes. I was I <laughs> Just as a disclaimer there, I mean, it was the virus of herpes which you can yeah. get yeah. normally as well thank you very much but I had appendicitis and herpes at the same time when I was oh. 11 years and I got diagnosed at 13 so a lot of friends and colleagues that I talked to we all had that one viral trigger oh yeah. Our- yeah I'm curious to know if you had that as well I had or pneumonia any kind of viral illness I had pneumonia as a shortly before and I was just a sickly kid so I, my conspiracy theory is I was on antibiotics. I think that my gut was robbed and my body just didn't know what to do. Yes. And I'm glad that we are starting to have these conversations because I have, inter- I mean, so many people that I've met again with no family history, when we start to really think about it as the person and not as the medical professional, we know that these could have been triggers and Absolutely. yeah, there's so many things to that. Well, let me ask you too, because of being in India, what gear do you have access to so are you on a pump or cgm and what are you using so i am on the omnipod and the dexcom g6 but i do not get my supplies from india because they're not available in india okay so what we do have access to in india are some of the legacy medtronic pumps and recently the 780g has also launched in india but it is way out of budget for the the average indian type 1 diabetic we have the libre one in India as well and we have the Ipsomed pump as well but Mm. we do not have Dexcoms we do not have Tandem, Omnipod none of these in India right now so we have a limited supply of tech also because we don't have public funding for it so everything you purchase is out of pocket and it's very very expensive so we are advocating a lot for better access to tech because it truly changed my life I'm on a DIY loop system as well so right now couldn't have happened if I didn't have access to these kind of things. But we're really trying to advocate firstly for free insulin, then we can get onto the tech. <laughs> okay. And that's a question. A so, journey. <laughs> do you have to pay out of pocket for your insulin? Yeah. Wow. How much is a, a vial of Novolog? Oh, uh, I'm trying to convert it for dollars to you. So <laughs> uh, divided by what is it, 80 right now? Well, it's about $30, but it's still, because you have to look at the purchasing power of India as well. $30 yeah. is a lot in India. Yeah. And I, that's why I love everything that you're doing is because these conversations are not, I mean, for the everyday person, or if you're not familiar with what's going on in India, you would have no idea. So when we talk about the price of insulin, it is a global deal. Yeah.
And I'm glad that we're all fighting the fight for that. Okay. So I want to ask you, and we'll have to wrap it up soon. I have so many questions. Tell me more about your role as the IBF's Young Leader of Diabetes for Southeast Asia. That's a long title. What, what, is, what exactly does that mean? IDF, which is the International Diabetes Federation. So they have a YLD program, which is the Young Leader of Diabetes, and they do it region-wise. So I was the YLD for Southeast Asia from the year 2019 to 2022. That was my term. And the entire idea is about sort of focusing on advocacy projects from these different parts of the world. And you have to be, I I believe, under 28 as a young leader, quote Mm -hmm. unquote. So now I'm YLD alumni and we mentor the other YLDs. But the idea is to really foster this sort of T1 champion kind of a spirit in more young people so that they can at their grassroots levels, do projects and work on advocacy and enable them with the tools and the uh, sort of mentorship that they would require to carry on these projects. So I had a great mm-hmm. time with my YLD journey because, you know, you get to meet people like you, you get yeah. inspiration from mentors and it really sort of boosts up this entire advocacy type one advocate kind of a profile. Oh, I love that so much. Two questions that I ask, and just because I want to figure out, and this is more for like research that's beside the point. Do you have access to fresh fruits or vegetables within walking distance? I do. Yes. A lot of the people do not. Right. And well, and it's, yeah, the food deserts and all kinds of things. Number two, do you feel like, and I, this is not a fair question to you because you're in the trenches like I am, but do you feel like you continue to get proper education about the advancements in diabetes care? Well, you know, not really, honestly, even though I'm so much in this whatever space of diabetes, yeah. I still feel like I have to go and reach out to find out more about it. Yeah. Even with all the projects I'm a part of and all the networks I, I'm part of, I, I have colleagues and I have uh, the community that is that works with diabetes. And we need to really try to open up those sort of pathways to get them the, the latest education. And Decoder is, is one attempt at that. Yeah. But it's not what it should be like you know mm. it's we're not there yet and the idea is that even if we are getting to know about the the latest advancements it's coming later to us it's coming not in a language that we understand and it's coming in a way that it's we don't have anything to do with it so i think we need to do better as a community and as a fraternity to make access to that mm. information widely accept uh, accessible because if i talk about india we've got 28 languages in india right? Right. To get that one piece of information translated into a multilingual regional language, contextualize it so that each person understands it. We're not there yet. Wow. Yeah. That is so well said too. Yeah. Like I have no words because there's so much and that's rare that I can say that. Okay. So on the horizon, hopefully by the end of this month, what do you got going on? So I'm very excited because this has been like a five-year-long dream for me. The moment I started Diabestes and when we got registered as a not-for-profit, my first dream was to have a physical Diabestes center where people can come in. And I, and you know, I was very clear. I had a vision in my mind. I did not want it to look like a clinic. So I wanted mm-hmm. it to look non-medical. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Because I wanted people with diabetes to come and feel safe. I wanted them to come and feel celebrated. Construction work is on. Hopefully by the end of this month in Diabetes Awareness Month, we launch our first Diabetes Center for Education and Empowerment. It's a physical space. Uh, 
which people can come in, learn more about the condition. We're going to have workshops. We're going to have dia meets. We're going to have fun parties. We're going to have one-on-one counseling. And it just becomes a safe and friendly space where you can come and celebrate your condition. How are you funding all this? Because that is a lot. And so as somebody are- who's a non- nonprofit and do all this myself, like I know these things get, yeah. get they are pricey. So yeah, if you don't mind me asking, how, how are you funding all this? Yeah, absolutely. So like I said, right, like we're, so I do diabetes full time. This is my sort of bread and butter itself. And even it's my 50 member team, right? So we rely a lot on corporate funding. We rely Mm. on CSR projects. And if when I'm not doing diabetes work, I'm out there pitching and, you know, to different corporates and finding people who believe in good work and finding people who believe not just in a check mark kind of a box but people who believe that we're trying to create a meaningful impact and we're not just trying to give you statistics we're trying to help with the stories behind those statistics as well yeah I 100% agree with that and I want to say too when you talk about the diabetes physical location this is not a fair comparison but when I was Going through college, I received funding because of my type 1 diabetes having a disability, but I was limited as to what I could study. So if I lost my eyesight, I would still be employable. So art was totally off the, I couldn't be an artist. (laughs) I graduated from college with an environmental geography degree because that's really important. And I opened opened a gallery and, and helped other artists. And I was just like, so it's just one of those things like when you were talking about when you're told you can't or you whatever, A, no, that's not going to yeah, be the case. absolutely not. <laughs> and turning the the scenario around. And sh- and I think that what, what, what you're doing is really helping other people, giving them a glimpse of hope and the normalizing and having the real conversations. The gallery, and again, not a fair comparison, I made it, I, it was colorful. There was no white walls. It was not intimidating. I wanted you to come in, ask questions, have fun and have a conversation and so I kind of see that with what you're doing with the physical location. And I can't wait to see the the final. I, I mean, it's going to be a big deal. And I'll be sure to put all these things in the show notes. Well, as we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to share with the listeners? No, I think this has been a wonderful conversation. And I think I think just everyone listening, just the if everyone does their just a little bit of part of, you know, spreading the little bit of awareness, you know, yeah. a lot of people ask me, you know, we want to do, we want to make change and we want to try to do something for the community and we don't know where to start. And, you know, I always give the same advice that change begins with one person, you know, so even if you go and educate or advocate or makes one more person aware, it's so much more than other people are doing. So just go out there. And I, another thing I just want to put out there is that advocacy does not have to be boring. And unfortunately mm-hmm. we're all conditioned to believe that advocacy is a certain look and feel to it, but no, make it your own, you know, add the colors and the flavor of yeah. your personality into your advocacy and tell your story the way you want to tell it so thank you like you are providing such a beautiful platform for so many advocates around the world so thank you for what you do as well and thank you for inviting me to be a part of this well I'm glad we can finally make it happen I mean seriously (laughs) our world's finally collided (laughs) one last question for you just because I'm I and this is uh, how to word this I love Indian food and I've always had to carb guess going into it right uh, tell me about like your, what, what are you, are you low carb? I mean, what's your, how do you handle all that? Cause there's a lot. 
it's a lot it's a lot and there's certain indian foods 15 years being type one i still mess up the carb counting <laughs> like there's there's a particular indian meal called poha and if any indians are listening you know how difficult it is to carb count for poha <laughs> I do not follow a low carb diet. I actually just follow a very balanced meal. So I try to yeah. include a fiber into my meals. So yeah. anything, there are veggies on the side or there's salad on the side or there's soup on the side. And yeah. a lot of our Indian food is uh, is carb heavy, but there's a lot of also the non-carb heavy versions as well. Yeah. I just ensure that I try to have a very balanced diet. And I'm not a very sweet tooth as it is so yeah it's eats and then you know we try to make up our own versions with Splenda or with I don't know (laughs) other things but it's been okay Mm. just a few foods that I just stay away from because I cannot carb count for them I just can't (laughs) (laughs) well Jazz thank you so much for being on the show and I look forward to seeing everything that's coming out and I hope to at one point meet you in person it'd be great I would love that so whether I could (laughs) So you come to India, we should find some time to meet for sure. And thank you so much for the invite. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you. As I wrap up, I want to remind you that I'm here for my diabetes and the medical community. So feel free to contact me at diabetesdailygrind.com. Your continued support and love help keep the episodes coming. Cheers to the highs and lows, everyone.